This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So we're starting a new series today called Original Virtue, The Abundant Life. And obviously, the abundant life comes from that phrase, famous phrase in John 10.10. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy, But you could say it with me, but Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. So we're talking about original virtue, um, the abundant life. In this series, we're going to cover about 15 virtues, 15 characteristics that I believe are the characteristics and attributes of God, but we'll get into that more in the ensuing weeks. But we're going to cover about 15 virtues, and I'll, I'll, I'll list them for you at the end of this sermon. But today I want to lay a foundation, and essentially this idea of original virtue, this idea of the abundant life is trying to answer the question or at least address the question of who we are, whose we are, and the life that we're called to live. As followers of Jesus Christ, as followers, as this manifest image of God in the earth and ourselves the manifest image of God in the earth, what kind of life are we supposed to live? So this series, Original Virtue, will take us through May, through June, and through July, and every week we'll take a different virtue and just kind of uh, tear them apart, break them down, and look at them, and do our best then to leave, and that week try to draw out of our substance, out of our life, uh, because I do believe the virtues are actually embedded in the image of God, which is embedded in us. Now, original, per the question of origin, Per the question of where did all of this come from, where did we come from? Most satisfying to me is the answer that our universe and all that's in our universe, that's you, that's me, everything, is a creation. This idea of us, this, as creation, makes the most intellectual and rational sense for me. This sense that as a creation, all that is had a beginning. There was a time when it wasn't, and then in the space of creative energy, creative decision, a space of creation, all that wasn't was. And I also believe that as a creation, as something that had a beginning, I believe behind that beginning was intention. This is a creation, this creation had a beginning, and behind, beneath that beginning was intention. And I personally believe, and I think most of you do, most of us are of a theistic ilk in our faith system, I believe that beneath and behind that intention, as its impetus, was a source, a creator. We call that God. Now, driving me, there are a lot of things that drive me in my belief in creation and creator, but one of the things that drives me in my sense that there is a creator and all of this is a creation is something that philosophers, and especially Christian philosophers through the years, have described as imminent transcendence. And by imminence, you know the word imminent, it means near, within, here, present, close, transcendent the idea of the other, the idea of that which is beyond. My sense that this is a creation, my sense that there is a creator is driven by this sense that I have of imminent transcendence. 
that buried within the universe, embedded in the universe, are things that transcend it. Inside the physical universe, inside my life, inside your life, inside Florence Evergreen, just a moment ago that we held, inside all of us are things that are immeasurable. Realities that can't be constructed, realities that can't be deconstructed, realities that transcend the idea of an elemental charge or atoms and electrons and quarks, realities that are not subject to the laws of physics. Now philosophers, and again, especially Christian philosophers over thousands of years actually, but especially over the last thousand years, people like Aquinas, Anselm, big-minded people have called these realities, these imminent transcendencies, they've called them transcendentals. Pastor Melissa often speaks of three transcendentals, and these three have gotten a lot of press over the last several hundred years, but they are beauty. We're talking about stuff that's in creation and yet beyond it. Beauty, truth, Goodness. Don, I remember down at Captiva Island when we married you and Kim. What's that been? Nine years ago? You remember the old professor from Stanford of organic chemistry chewing on his cigar last night? Brilliant guy. Pa uh, professor Emeritus at Stanford. He and I one night were talking. He knew that I was a minister, a Christian. And as he chewed on his cigar, I mean, this guy's been the head of chemistry professors in North America, whatever that society is called, just brilliant guy. But he was chewing on his cigar, and he looked at me, Don, and he said, do you really believe, and I'm not going to use the word that he used, but he said, do you really believe all of that stuff? It started with an S. Do you believe all that stuff? <laughs> he was a great guy. Remember, he didn't smoke his cigar, he just chewed it. I said, I think I do. He said, well, I don't. I said, well, good for you. I don't know what to say. He had a couple of scotches in him by this time. It was like 10 o'clock. <laughs> he said, well, I don't. I said, well, what do you think about all of it? He said, Brad, he waved his hand. He said, organic, strictly organic. I said, maybe so. He was a great guy, actually. We talked into the night. The next day, as you guys were getting married, standing out there on that little shore where... Mary Lindbergh used to write, as I was pronouncing you and the sun was setting, it was a beautiful day, a blue heron. You remember that? A blue heron flew over us. And I saw him captivated on Captiva Island by that blue heron. I didn't know exactly what was happening, but later that night I said, I saw you when that blue heron flew over, something happened. And he said, yes. And he told me about the love of his life that he had been married to for over a half a century that he had recently lost. And he told me that her favorite bird was a blue heron. And he told me that when they took her ashes to the Cascade Mountains, her favorite spot, a good ways inland, as they emptied the ashes and spread her over the side of that beautiful place there in the Cascades, a wind came through and the ashes, instead of just falling, cascaded down the side of the Cascades. And as they cascaded in the wind, diffusing little by little, two blue herons flew through them. And he told me that as that blue heron flew over you guys, it was almost as though it looked in his eyes. And he said she was there. 
And I didn't want to spoil the moment, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I looked at him, John, and I said, you old hypocrite. And he knew exactly what I was saying. And he said, touche, Reverend, touche. Transcendentals. Things like beauty, truth, and goodness that Mel talks about a lot. Things like unconditional love, inexplicable peace, unspeakable joy. These, these things, Carrie, that wrap up in the dirty, nasty fabric of raising four boys. And about the time you want to pull your hair out, you see that which transcends. Things that create a quality of life that is not subject to the vicissitudes of riches or poverty, plenty or scarcity, deprivation. Transcendentals like the presence of mutuality, generosity, compassion, forbearance and mercy when you would least expect it. These things point to a reality of meaning that cannot be quantified, it cannot be proven, it cannot be disproven scientifically. And these things to me, this is me, they don't seem to me to be vestiges, you know, genetic leftovers from a previous age when we had it all together. That is not my sense of what Scripture, even the book of Genesis, is trying to tell us. I think that's a read that we're growing into or out of. I don't think that these transcendentals are just vestiges, genetic leftovers from a previous age that we've lost. I personally believe that these things are the truest building blocks of who we are. These are the truest, are the truest markers of our identity. They point to who we were created to be. The virtues that we're going to talk about, and I think we're actually going to make time for about 15 virtues in that 11 weeks because four of the weeks we hold uh, virtues in tension like humility and self-worth, perseverance and patience. But I think things like these virtues that we'll be talking about or exploring, I think they are transcendentals. And to explain the presence of these things in the midst of all this material universe, to explain the beauty of creation's construction, to explain what people through the years have observed as a moral art to the universe. You know that language, the moral art to the universe. That moral art that we believe transcendently bends toward justice and goodness and redemption. King said sometime the moral arc bends so imperceptibly that we can't see it. Sometime our tears and our pain even seem to bend it away from justice. But again and again we come back to this idea that no, there is a moral arc to the universe. And in spite of the two steps backward, there is a three steps forward move of the image of God in creation. Um, scholars, philosophers, religionists have been... Um, a part of an enduring conversation for thousands of years about where did creation come from or what is the building block of creation? Uh, what is the raw material out of which the universe was composed? 
The three camps are creatio, forgive my Latin, I took two semesters a long time ago, but creatio, some of our 11th graders snicker whenever I speak Latin because they're so smart, but creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, creatio ex materia, or materia, creation out of matter, the one I like, creation ex dio, or ex deo, obviously creation out of God. I personally subscribe to the last of those three, creation out of the being of God. I, I don't subscribe to creation ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo. I, I don't believe that God made out of nothing. I believe God made out of God's self. I believe that God did have building blocks to work with. God created out of the being of God. I don't believe that time and space and matter are infinite in nature. I believe that there was a reality, and you can't say there was a time because we're talking about something that transcends time, but there was a reality when time, space, and matter, and again, when, again, you just lose the ability to really speak to this stuff. All you can do is point. But there was a reality when time, space, and matter weren't. There was a time when those things did not exist. And in that reality that transcends time and space, God, listen to this, God was alone. To borrow words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said God was all, all, in, all. God was everything. There was nothing else. God was everything, listen, everywhere. And then God created all in all. And then God wasn't all in all because there was other. Everything everywhere. And then God wasn't everything everywhere because God created other. God shared the status of being. Did you know what you are? But Barbie, you are God's decision to not be alone. You are the holy, H-O-L-Y, other to the one who was once holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other, and decided not to be. God was alone. And oh, those words of Frederick Buechner, and we who might not have been are and all this that might not have been is. But until that moment of decision, nothing existed. And in the strictest sense of the word, exist in the strictest old sense of the word, God didn't even exist. You say, wait a minute. Well, modern usage of the word exist means to have real being. Of course, God exists and always existed. But it comes from the Latin word existere, ex out of, sestere, to stand. The original word existere from which we get exist meant to stand out of. In other words, to come into being out of a source, to be born of. So God did not come into being out of a source. God did not stand out from. So next time you're talking to one of your atheist friends, tell them, I believe in God, but I do not believe God exists. That'll really mess with them. But in the modern sense, of course, God exists. But God didn't come into being. God always was. But we, all of creation, all of this stuff that is God's decision to not be alone, 
We have come into being because of a decision made by a magnanimous God, a God who one day, and again, time frame, pointing, not capturing. Our language is so insufficient. Beekner said, you long for silver-tongued oration to describe this which is unspeakable, and forever words fail you, and clack, clack goes the wooden tongue of your ignorance against the palate of your longing. God decided to no longer be all in all, no longer be everything everywhere. And if the Judeo-Christian scriptures give us any insight as to what lay behind that incredible decision of magnanimity, that incredible decision of sharing and generosity, it is tantamount to that couple who share space with a child and another that couple who decide to not be everything in their home, but to take the office and turn it into a nursery? If the Judeo-Christian scriptures give us any insight to what the impetus was behind, the intention behind that decision to not create, it is that God desired the beauty of mutuality. God desired the truth of love. God desired the goodness that we call reciprocity, reciprocal giving and receiving in relationship. If the Bible teaches us anything, and I think our intuitions and even our practical lives teach us anything, it is that somewhere, somehow, God desired the beauty, truth, and goodness of giving and receiving. Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber, how'd you like to get through middle school with that name? <laughs> but Buber was a great philosopher. And he called creation the great withdrawal of God. What did God withdraw from in creation? God withdrew, Buber said, from isolation. God withdrew from everything status by creating space for the other. Creation was the sharing of God, the sharing of space with God. For some, and I, I, I gotta admit right up front, for some, this line of thinking is problematic because it implies that one day God found God's self in need, and that's bothersome for some people. Some say that what you're implying is even more than God found God's self in need, but God found God's self worse in a place of dissatisfaction. Worse, maybe even someone said, it seems you're implying, and it's not me, the, the scripture certainly implies this, and if we're created in the image of God, if Jesus could say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think all of this points to the idea that God did find God's self there, dissatisfied, insufficient. I know, I know. In need. 
And some would say that this seems so demeaning to God, and I admit automatically it certainly doesn't capture God. All we do is point. Don't ever get lost in the finger or the fingernail that points. <laughs> but for me, the desire, even need to love. Leah, I look at you with your arm around that lady with the mask on, Carol. The desire and need, oh, how he needs you, Carol. Oh, how he cries about your cancer. Oh, and you him. And Lee Anglin is not demeaned by his need, his insufficiency, his dissatisfaction for you, not in that bed. The desire, even need to love, to share, to give, to receive, to bless, to be blessed, to nurture and be nurtured, to cherish and to be cherished. That need is never demeaning, whether in relation to God's children or God. For me, the desire for relationship and sharing is not demeaning to a God who is called love. I mean, for crying out loud, when we look for one attribute, one virtue, and say, let's, let's put the, the, the number one virtue that describes God. God is love. And the writers of Scripture certainly build a case that I'm trying to make. I mean, follow their logic. One, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 9, and that love is revealed in that he gave his son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Johanna literature is all over that idea. You can't say you love without really loving. God is love. That love is revealed in that God gave. In Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus is quoted. This is agrapha, agrapha, A-G-R-A-P-H-A. It's a quote from Jesus that's not found in the Gospels. And if you're ever reading Acts 20 and you hear that Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than receive. And you say, well, where did he say that? Somewhere in the lexicon of oral tradition. There were a lot of things Jesus said that weren't captured in the Gospels, and that was one of them. But the logic is God is love. Watch it. One, God is love. Two, love gives. Three, it is more blessed to give than receive. So God loves, God gives, and God is blessed. I mean, our scripture and songs have been talking about blessing God for years. Have you thought through what you're saying? By receiving the gift of life, creation blesses the creator. And certainly, I get it, by receiving the gift of being, creation is also blessed. He didn't say that it's a blessing to give and it's not a blessing to receive. He just said it's more of a blessing to give than it is to receive. And haven't you found that to be true? Who wants to be on the receiving end all of the time? Who wants to be the one insufficient, facing deprivation that needs what the other has? We want reciprocity. We want both. And it's, it's a blessing to receive the gift of creation. Both are a blessing. But listen, 
Jesus said, giving is the greater blessing, receiving is the lesser blessing. And in any healthy relationship, all involved will do both, give and receive. So it can properly be said, put your thinking hats on, it can properly be said that creation was God's decision to give and receive. Creation was God's decision. God is love, love gives, it is blessed to give. Creation was God's decision to be blessed and to be a blessing. And frankly, the reality is within the context of any healthy relationship, any friendship, any relationship, in the context of any healthy relationship, giving and receiving are so inextricably linked that when they are done right, they become indistinguishable. And when you really get it right, you can't tell where the giving stops and the giving starts. You can't tell where the receiving starts and the receiving stops. But the giving and the receiving become so inextricably linked. St. Julian of Norwich, one of my favorite saints, coined the word wanting. There is a wanting that happens between us and God. The blessed and the blesser become so woven together that Julian said, and even in our relationships, there can be a wanting so much so, and we see this especially with our children, that in our giving to them, if they truly receive the gift, there is the ultimate satisfaction. What do you like more at Christmas? Opening the gifts that your children have given you or watching them open the ones you have given them? You know. And if you like the ones that they give you more than the ones you give them, please don't say anything about that. <laughs> but you know. Wanting is this place for giving and receiving. Both are gift and they become one thing, not two. And what I wanna to say to you as I lay the foundation for this upcoming series about virtue is that in receiving the gift of being, in receiving the gift of life, in receiving the blessing of being the created one, the height of that blessing for you and for me is that we are created out of the being of God. We, I wanna say it, I want you to hear it, we are created out of the being of God. And there are a lot of ways of saying this. Scripture employs several ways of saying it. Genesis 1, 5, and 9, chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 9, say we were created, listen, in the image of God. Two of those three passages expand that and say we were created in the likeness of God. Scripture says later, we were created and we have become partakers of the divine nature. Did you get that? We are made in the likeness of God. Now what Scripture is saying is not that we are deities, but we are divine. A deity is God. Divine simply means of the essence of God. We are not gods, but we are of the essence of God. We are not the creator, 
But as Paul told the men at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, we are the Creator's offspring. We don't have time to look at all of these texts, but let me run through them just quickly, quotationally. John 13, Jesus said, when you love your enemy, look at that, or when you love each other, rather, everyone will know that you belong to me. You know why everybody will know you're mine? Because you look like me when you're doing this. Matthew, the fifth chapter and the great Sermon on the Mount. You've heard people say, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for anyone who mistreats you. And then you'll be acting. You'll look just like your Father in heaven when you love like that. Because he makes the sun rise on good and bad people. He sends rain for the one who do right and for the ones who do wrong. If you love only those people who love you, will God reward you for this? Even tax collectors love their friends. If you greet only your friends, what's so great about this? Don't even unbelievers do that? But you must always act like your Father in heaven. Or as most of the word-for-word -word translations render that, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That from the Torah, be ye perfect for I am perfect. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Perfect there simply means complete. Come to fruition, fully matured. And then 1 John 4, just one more text. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Notice, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love, he does not say they're not born of God. He said they simply don't know God. There is the capacity to be born of God and not know God. Absolutely. Acts 17, I just quoted a moment ago, Paul spoke to the philosophers and he said, you worship a God that you do not know. And he said, let me tell you his name now. And then he said, for all of us are the offspring of that God. It is possible to be born of God, but not know God. But if you are born of God and know God, you live a life of love because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. That's the life we live, through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Wow. What a text. And finally, verse 12 says, love is perfected in us. And we are made complete as we love one another. The church through the ages has called this divinization. Irenaeus, Athanasius, Aquinas, Meister Eckhart, on and on. Our greats have talked about this thing called theosis. An earthly example of that. And I want Josh and the folk to come because they're going to sing a song that will just put an exclamation point on this idea of who and how we were created to be in this world. An earthly example of this idea of divinization, of becoming that which we were created to be, living out of the substance of God in which we were created, is the idea of parenting. I texted a beautiful woman this morning over in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Happiest of Mother's Day, Mom. I could have never dreamed of a mom better than Shirley Mitchell. I hope she's watching. That's the truth. I was talking to Nina this week, and she said, Dad, she stared at me, and she said, you know what? 
It was like she figured something out. She looked at me, Richard, and she said, you look like Pop, but you act just like Jeej. And I want to tell you, both were compliments. Nina understands that I do not replace or replicate those two people, but I am perpetuating their essence. I am perpetuating their image. I am a carrier of their genes. And Chris Boskell, you were created in the image of God out of the substance of God, and your original blessing is an original character, an embedded life of virtue. I do not believe that the virtues are something that come from outside. I do not believe that God comes, treats us like a puppet, and he is the marionette. I believe that we were created, and as 2 Peter 1, 3 says, we have everything we need for a life of godliness. We have everything we need for a life of God-like Nuss. Well, of course we do because we were made in the likeness of God. And the reason my mom looks at me wistfully sometimes and says, as long as I have you, even when he's gone, I will still have your dad. That's why Jesus said when they see you loving like that, they will say, oh, I know who they, they belong to. I know whose parent is theirs. We are embedded with an original blessing. We are embedded with an original character. We are embedded with a gift of original virtue. And you can call it whatever you want to call it, holiness, sanctification, moral excellence. But I call it the gift of God. And for the next 11 weeks, we're going to talk about what it truly means to be born again, to be invited to recognize, deploy, and enjoy the image of God that is inside of us. I want to tell everyone in this room, this is your birthright. You were embedded with the fabric of the substance of God, and in that substance is a character and there is a potential in you for godliness. We're going to cover virtues like wisdom, honesty, gratitude, humility. We're going to temper humility with self-worth, confidence, love, justice with mercy, courage, perseverance with patience self-control, simplicity, contentment juxtaposed with hope, holy satisfaction juxtaposed with holy dissatisfaction, and then ultimately the virtue of peace. Now, here's what I know. There is gold in them their hills. There is an image of God inside of every one of you, and every virtue I just named is the substance, Mike Kofal, of God's image, and that substance is in you. Now, 
the layers of life, sociology, and psychology that all of us have, those layers make some of these virtues a reach for some of us. But I want you to understand the reach is not outward, the reach is inward. And as God helps us through God's Spirit uncover the layers of sin and brokenness, shame, addiction, estrangement, separation, all of those layers, as we uncover and get down, you will find that the beginning of your story is not Genesis 3 and a fall. The beginning of your story is Genesis 1. You were created in the image of God. And at the core of your being, these things reside. And it is God's call for us to live lives of God-likeness. Can you say amen?